This episode of the Pillar Podcast is sponsored by Mariel Arnold in honor of her husband, Travis Arnold, who's celebrating a birthday this week. Happy birthday, Travis, from me, from JD, and from all of us here at the Pillar. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings Travis Arnold great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and lamentably, I'm not joined by my pal, Travis Arnold. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condit. Ed, it's Travis's birthday. I, I'm excited for Travis. I hope he gets something nice. Me too. I don't, too. I don't actually know because Mrs. Arnold did not, did not tell us how old Travis is turning, which, which suggests to me that perhaps he might be as, as we are and have, um, be in the throes of middle age and, and perhaps doesn't want that broadcast ever, which is totally cool. I get it. Um, you know, I, I went to getting old is not fun. I went to the opticians this week to get my glasses retested. And I was told that I was knocking on the door and needed bifocals soon. And oh, really? um, that made me feel not good. That, I, that made yeah. me feel distinctly mortal. I think I need glasses. I, uh, I think I need glasses, but I don't want to, I don't want to go to the eye doctor. I don't like that I, kind of thing. Yeah. No, it's it, it, being in your forties is not fun. You need new glasses. All of a sudden you're, you, you find you, you prefer a higher trouser waistline sensible brown shoes become you know the greatest thing in the world i you know yeah 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 well um we have a lot to talk about um this week and none of them is that um but there is just so much happening in the life of the church right now and let's just put it out there there's no way we're going to get to most of it in our conversation today no we're going to talk about i don't know what but um you know you are as we found out this week, a horrible person. So I, no, I, I don't want to talk about that. There's too much important stuff to talk about, and I'm a good person. Uh, no, no, only God is good, but I try to be a good person. And uh, there's too much for us. To, there's too much real stuff for us to talk about this week. And so let's start. I mean, let's just start where at the beginning of the week. Really, we found out late um, Sunday night that um, uh, on Monday morning, a group of five cardinals was going to make public. Um, a set of dubia questions. Dubia is a word which means questions, which they uh, had sent to the Roman pontiff and which were um, apparently not answered. And the way this was sort of first framed to us when we first heard about it from a third-party source was that the these five cardinals had sent the Pope some questions about the synod on synodality, and the Pope had not answered those questions, and they had decided to make them public. But it turned out on Monday morning that that was not exactly um, the case, was it? Uh, no, no. The, they They had received, I think, um, was it seven pages of answers? Yeah. So what had happened is back in July, these cardinals sent to the Pope five questions about synodality, and we can um, walk through the questions um, if we want. But they sent them to the Pope on July 10th. Questions like, um, um, it is asked whether in the church divine revelation should be reinterpreted according to the cultural changes of our time and according to the new anthropological vision that these changes promote, or whether divine revelation is binding forever immutable and therefore not to be contra contradicted. Or it is asked, can the church derogate? Uh, there's a sort of preamble here about um, that sexual differences are um, uh, uh, part of God's plan and that the Apostle Paul teaches that to deny sexual differences is a consequence of the denial of the Creator. And then it is asked, can the church derogate from this principle, considering it contrary uh, to what Veritatis Splendor 103 taught as a mere ideal and accepting as a possible good objectively sinful situations such as same-sex unions without betraying revealed doctrine. Questions such as this. So the Cardinal sent on July 10 these questions to the pontiff, and the questions, each 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 of these five questions was preceded by a paragraph or so of 
um, kind of like some theological background. Um, it is asked whether um, the teaching of the Council of Trent, according to which the contrition of the penitent, which consists in detesting the sin committed with the intention of sinning no more, is necessary for the validity of the sacramental confession, is still in force. So the priest must postpone absolution, postpone absolution when it's clear that this condition is not fulfilled. Um, qu- questions like that were asked, and then what happened? Um, well, the the Pope gave them seven pages worth of answers. On July 11th, the very next day. Which is a remarkable turnaround time. Mm-hmm. I still have emails from July 2011 that I know I need to respond to. Yeah, I um, I can't think of any interaction I have with people apart from maybe you and my wife whom I can get a response out of in 24 hours uh, <laughs> for sure. I mean, that doesn't that that seems like a remarkably quick turnaround time, uh, almost implausibly fast. I mean, are you are you not struck? No, I'm not struck by that because I suspect that what the Pope did um, and this is based on my own experience in a diocese where when people would send my boss the bishop questions, the bishop would send them to the relevant party and say, hey, can you um, draft some responses for me to these and then I'll view them, review them. I suspect that's what the Pope did. And then the bishop would review them and say yay or nay or change or modify or whatever. I suspect the Pope did the same thing. But Archbishop Fernandez, who I suspect got the questions, excuse me, Cardinal now Fernandez, who I suspect got the questions, is a pretty prolific um, writer and seems to be kind of a Johnny on the spot. So I guess is he banged out some answers pretty quick, sent them to the Pope, well, they worked him over and sent him out. And I guess if Cardinal Fernandez is, as he is expected to be the, you know, the primary author of the, the answers given on the Pope's behalf and under his name to these, to these dubia, um, he would have more than usual time on his hands. Cause in July he was, he was sort of between jobs as it were. Yeah, that's right. He was, he and was it, not yet in, in harness at the DDF. And again, if you're, if your boss is the pontiff and you're at a new job and the pontiff says, hey, could you answer these questions? My guess is you clear your schedule. Yeah, you probably want to show willing. Um, Sorry, mom, I've got to you know do this thing for the pontiff. Okay, the so Pope then what happened? Me. So the, the pontiff sent them seven pages of answers on July 11th and then? And, they, and the, the answers were not to the, to the liking of, of the cardinal questioners. Uh, so they they sent them back rephrased so as to admit only yes or no answers. That's right. They did that in August. Uh, and August. Uh, response got they none. Yeah, that's so right. September came and went with no response. So at the beginning of October, they released these um, they released these questions saying that they had not gotten a yes or no response to the Pope, and that um, that the the whole ordeal. So the way it kind of unfolded was kind of interesting. They released this both sets of questions to a journalist, an Italian journalist named Sandro Magister, who's kind of like this big deal in sort of Vatican journalism. Um, they he's rele- the go-to guy if you're looking to publish your dubia. Yeah, the Pope hasn't answered. He's, I think that's right. He's the go-to yeah. guy if you're looking to publish your dubia that the Pope hasn't answered. But he has a lot of, I think, credibility and these kinds of things. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so they re- they gave them to Sandro Magister. Sandro Magister published them. And then the Holy See said, wait, you know, these are two sets of dubia. And we did answer the first set of dubia within hours, actually. It's kind of surprising. We did answer the first set of dubia. And they published online on the DDF's website their, the answers to the, to the first set of questions. And Archbishop Fernand, Cardinal Fernandez said, yes, the Pope didn't answer the second set of questions. But the Pope is not, and this is what he told a Spanish news agency that day, a slave to their errands, which I thought was a rather stringent repudiation of their request. I um, I'm not sure. I'm not on Cardinal Fernandez's side with that. 
Well, so there are two things to talk about here, right? There's the substantive, there's the sort of Pope substantive answers to the questions, which a lot of people have been talking about. Um, I gave, I was, I gave a talk at a parish last night, my own parish actually. And, um, you know, the talk was about the Eucharistic revival and kind of the liturgy and, and, and the liturgy as it correlates to sacraments, but all of the questions, it was actually not just me that gave a talk. I gave a talk with Father Jose Granados, who's a really very good theologian and, it was very cool. Um, but all the questions or many of the questions were not as much about that as they were about this. In fact, our own pastor, so the pastor was in the audience and the pastor was the first one to ask a question. And his question was, but did the Pope approve blessings for same-sex couples this weekend? Like, And that's what everybody wanted to ask about, this thing which has dominated the headlines, which is in the Pope's response, this sense that the Pope perhaps approved um, uh, same-sex blessings. So that's one thing is the substance of the Pope's responses, which I think merit a great deal of discussion. But yes. the other thing is the th the process, right? What these cardinals did, and sort of what what to make of that, um, and what they what they approached. And it sounds like you've got some. I've got some thoughts on that, but it sounds like you do too. Well, on on, on the on the specific and narrow point that Cardinal Fernandez made um, after the the second round of dubia were were published, um, and much was made of the fact that they didn't get an answer. Um, I, I don't know that I disagree with Cardinal Fernandez. In fact, I think I kind of tend to agree with him. It's like, look, he's the Pope. You asked him some questions. He gave you quite long answers to them. Um, and he did it in very quick turnaround time. And then to sort of come back and say, well, sorry, your holiness, those aren't good enough for us. We, you need to answer yes or no. It's like, well, hang on. He, I, I understand the the desire to of members of the College of Cardinals to to put questions to the Pope if there are things about which they are unclear, um, and I think it's good and right that the Pope respond to those questions, and I think it's fabulous that he respond to them in such a timely manner. But he is also still the Pope; like you don't get to turn around and say, "Well, that's not good enough." Um, you know, the the College of Cardinals or or any subset thereof are not a sort of congressional oversight committee that get to you know tell the executive how and when to answer. There is there is that. And this the, the questions themselves, look, again, I think there's a lot to talk about with regard to the substance of the answers. And I have not been shy about the fact that there is a lot about the current moment, the teaching office of the church, the things, the words which come out of the Pope's mouth, which give me, which cause me bewilderment, concern, confusion, and discouragement at times. All, all of that is true, I think, for m most thinking Catholics, right? So that's, you know, but the questions are like it's an orthodoxy test. Well, here, yeah. Here's the here's the first question. Let me summarize the first question. Should we reinterpret divine revelation according to modernity, or is divine revelation binding forever, immutable, and therefore not to be contradicted? This is not a dubia in which it's like there's a theological or contra canonical controversy over the meaning of this or that. Which is it? This is a question of. Um, in which there's a clear right answer. Divine revelation is binding forever, immutable, and therefore not to be contradicted. And it's like, are you going to give us the right answer? Right. Um, dare, li listen to the framing of this question. Can the church derogate from a principle, contrary to very taught to splendor, to consider it a mere ideal and accepting as a possible good? So in other words, can the church do something which contradicts very taught to splendor, your holiness? Um, I like this one very much. Is a teaching of the Council of Trent still in effect? Like an ecumenical council, which defines, declares, um, and, and clarifies sacred doctrine, the teachings, the definitive teachings of such a thing are indeed binding. That is a sort of basic premise of Catholic 
systematic theology, uh, and 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 therefore to say, is the Council of Trent still binding? Seems to me to be a way of saying we don't think you've considered the Council of Trent. Now, the cardinals may have that perspective that they don't think the pontiff has taken into consideration in some of the things that he said, the Council of Trent. The, the cardinals may think there are certain things which the pontiff has said which contravene the teachings of the Council of Trent with regard to the contrition of the penitent. Um, the cardinals may think, um, okay, so here they ask this question. We ask whether Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, which, teach, which teaches as a truth to be definitively held the impossibility of uh, conferring priesthood ordination of women is still valid. In other words, we know as a matter of systematics that Ordinatio Sacerdotalis is a definitive and binding declaration of do- Catholic doctrine, which I must hold. Pope, Do we want to know it? if you if you know that. Do you? Hold which is that? a weird of all the dubious. That was the weirdest one that I thought that they submitted because Francis has been. I mean, and we can we can and we should talk about the ambiguities around what the Pope has and hasn't done and has and hasn't said on, for example, blessings for same-sex unions, um, the contrition of the penitent in the granting of sacramental absolution and things like that. The, I, I think I understand the motivation for submitting, or at least the motivation behind submitting do beyond those points. Although again, I have, I have reservations and thoughts about the advisability of the form in which it was done. Um, but on this one, like there is no ambiguity in what we, what it's now fashionable around the DDF, thanks to Cardinal Tuco, uh, to call the magisterium of Pope Francis uh, on the ordination of women. Like He's clear. You can't do that. The church cannot do that. He can't change it. He's not going to change it. It's not up for discussion or debate. And anyone who says it is, is wrong and leading people down a garden path. And so, so that was like, yeah, so, it's, so, so that's the one that, I mean, you have said this is an orthodoxy test. And that's the one I think that really highlights this set of questions does not seem you know, even the dubia about um, Amor Sotitia, look, I don't know how to understand the footnote of footnote 351 of chapter 8 of Amor Sotitia and the Pope's promulgation of the so-called Buenos Aires guidelines still don't tell me how to understand that in accord with with the sort of theological presuppositions of the church. I, I don't know what to do with that. And so if the Cardinals ask questions about that, hey, I'm glad because I genuinely don't know what to do with that. I, d- I don't know what to do with them. Um, uh, there's a phrase in the Morse Letizia that I don't know what to do with. No one can be condemned forever. That is not the logic of the gospel. Well, my soteriology says otherwise, and I don't know what to do with that. If the Cardinals are asking about these kinds of questions, okay, yeah, great. Thank you. I'm glad. But that's sort of like, we don't understand what this phrase means, and we would like you to clarify it because it could be interpreted in this way and it could be interpreted in that way. These questions are just like, do you still believe in the Council of Trent? Do you believe in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis? And and when you say it's an orthodoxy test, I think it does read like an orthodoxy test. And I, well, I think it, it's definitely an orthodoxy test, and and it's an orthodoxy test that I suppose, depending on the dubia you're you're dealing with, it's an orthodoxy test uh, that could be applied to a couple of different people. I mean, the the rationale I suppose for including a question about, well, do you do you hold, and is it still true everything that you have said previously, and previous popes have said, and the church has always taught about the reservation to priestly ordination to men alone? I, I don't, I, I can't imagine. Because the people who signed the five cardinals who signed this, people like Cardinal um, Cardinal Sarah, Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Zen, like these are these guys are not clowns. They're they're fairly serious dudes, um, and they they can't be unaware the of the and work. I respect tremendously. Like 
yeah. you know, Cardinal Burke's so, canonical scholarship, I think, is really important. And he's still, by the way, a judge on the apostolic signature. Yeah, that's put right. Thereby, mm-hmm. Pope Francis. Um, so I, I can't believe that they're wholly ignorant or or even in doubt about what Pope Francis thinks or has well, no, said. I can't believe that they're wholly ignorant or in doubt about whether or not Trent still binds them, or whether or not Ordinatio Sacerdotalis still binds the Church. Sure. Yeah. Fine. I, no, but on the point of ordination of women, Francis has been clear repeatedly. So if they're not confused about what the Pope has said about that, and again, I find it hard to believe they could be, it seems to me that they're asking what the Pope basically do is give them something they can use and shove up the nose of people like Cardinal McElroy or the Bishop of Baal in Switzerland right. or the German Bishops' Conference and say, see, you, Francis says, you can't talk about this. Cardinal Stop talking McElroy about Cardinal McElroy said, this. we should talk about ordination of women at the Synod on Synodality. So these guys, I think, want the Pope to say, no, or not to Sacerdotalis. Yeah, so that they can maybe say, that is a good faith interpretation, so that they can maybe say, Hey, Cardinal McElroy, you know, right. that they're asking the Pope to clarify not their own confusion, but a confusion in the church. Sure. That is not the historical reasoning for dubia. No, um, I, I agree. And I, but I don't think that that makes it better. And I tell you for why is on the one hand, either this, some of these questions are an orthodoxy test for the Pope or they're an orthodoxy test that they can apply to other people. And I mean, I'm, I'm moved to ask. Have they never encountered Pope Francis before? Like, are they are they coming new to this pontificate? Like, I think have it would be perfectly. I mean, I I find this methodology like, yeah, po- the Pope is not going to do this thing. He's um, not, and he's not going to allow himself to be instrumentalized in a way to you know rein in other people. Like, that's not how he rolls. Now, I'm not saying that I don't wish he would be uh, on many of these topics and with many of these people. I do, but again, it's just like it doesn't strike me as. This was ever ever likely to yield any other um, result, and I and I find it curious that it was gone ahead with anyway. Like, what's what was the hope here? Here are the reactions that I hear from people who I regard highly. Right, I, I expressed on Tuesday in my newsletter a kind of uncertainty about the methodology, and here are the kinds of reactions I heard from some people. I heard. Yeah, the Pope is ambiguous about this, and thank God somebody has the courage to stand up for it. Thanks be to God for these guys. From other people, I hear, you know, when the Pharisees got together to ask questions of Jesus, Jesus didn't take the bait either, right? There seemed to be two camps, either like these guys were trying to trap the Pope and, and, and you know, uh, shame on them, or these guys are the, hero, are the heroes of our time for trying to get the Pope to stop being ambiguous and say yes or no on these hard things. Where I land is, I think it's good for Catholics who think that the Pope has not been sufficiently clear on his teaching, in teaching, to um, make their opinions known to the sacred pontiff. Your Holiness, we think that you have been ambiguous about these things. Will you clarify? That seems a fairly straightforward request from someone who thinks that. Your Holiness, we think that there are other cardinals who are teaching that Ordinatio Sacerdotalis could be called into question at the Synod on Synodality. We would urge you to clarify. Okay. The Christian faithful have the right to make to make their needs uh, and their opinions about matters of um, the life of the church. I wish I could remember precisely known to their sacred pastors, and at times they have even the duty. You know that's true. Um, but I do think the so I don't think that in, if that's the intention, get the Pope to clarify to to speak clearly, or rather urge the Pope to speak clearly, or provide a platform for the Pope to speak clearly, or beg the Pope to speak clearly. I think that's fine. But there is a way in which these questions sort of pointed at the Pope, not asked in good faith, does 
the Council of Trent still bind? Does Ordinatio Sacerdotal still bind? When they know that it does, that's what I mean by not asking good faith. It does seem like it easily lends itself to the interpretation of either something performative or something meant to be a kind of a trap. And I can understand why the Pope would not appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, again, I I don't, you, you said, you know, you think it's fine for Catholics who have reservations and concerns about the Pope's um, ambiguous approach to clear matters of church teaching that are being flouted uh, in different parts of the world. I'm one of those Catholics. I, I, yeah urgently wish that Pope Francis would drop the hammer on the Germans and that ridiculous goat rodeo of a synodal way that they did. But he has not. I mean, he's the, the curial dicasteries under Pope Francis and with his authority have written that this is not a synod, this is not synodal, what you are doing cannot stand, this is not ecclesiologically valid. But you know, there's been no actual contact made <laughs> to to stop any of that. And I wish there had been. Um, you know, there are entire dioceses in Germany now where the blessing of same-sex unions, not same-sex persons, same-sex same unions, sex unions, is, is normally, yeah, can effectively sort of not like decriminalized. What what it is is they're decriminalized. The bishop says it's like exactly what happened with drugs in this country. The bishop, you know, bef- long before sort of um, state legislatures legalize the you know possession of certain amounts of drugs many police forces effectively said we are not going to enforce drug violations under this or that um you know threshold and in a similar way the the bishop of um the archbishop of berlin sort of decriminalized same-sex blessings i'm not going to the blessings of same-sex unions i'm not going to sanction my priests if they do these same-sex blessings even though the ddf said that they can't um and uh and then the the bishops of flanders the um is Flanders is the Flemish-speaking region of, of Belgium or the French? Yes. What is the name of the French? Are they the Walloons? Oh, right. Flanders and Wallonia. The uh, the bishops of, of Flanders- I don't understand how any people can take themselves seriously when they call themselves Walloons. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're inviting mockery. The bishops of Flanders. Um, so does- We've got a lot to talk about with Belgium, but I'll- table it. I want to know about their Episcopal conference structure. The bishops of Flanders went a step further and promulgated a ritual text for the blessing of same-sex couples in a liturgical context. That is a big problem, and the pontiff has not done anything about it. And yeah, like on you, the I contrary, the pontiff, he's when they went to go and see him for their ad limited visit, they said, and the other half are working on their version, and we're going to put the two together, and we're going to have a national one. He said, okay, carry on, as long as you have consensus and you are all in communion, and you know. They say. They say, yeah. So- Look, I I understand the desire to see the Pope address those things. I'm right in there with them, and I and I think we our analytical work is often ad- impact like oriented towards addressing the impact of the Church as we see it, the impact on the Church as we see it on the Pope's failure to address these things. But I don't. I think the kind of asking of a question in a way that, given who's asking the question seems not to be a sincere, we ha- we're uncertain about this, but we want you to answer for some other reason about this, just strikes me as inappropriate. And I know, I know there are people who think, because some of them have told me, who who think these guys are heroes and JD, your fence sitting on this is um, mealy-mouthed or, you know, something, and this is very serious. Well, but there, But there has to be a Catholic way of, look, there's this huge challenge right now for a lot of Catholics namely the Pope. And there has to be a Catholic, there has to be real reflection on the Catholic way of living with that. 
I, I would agree. And I, I, again, I'm with you on all that. Although, um, I, I would, I would, I would amend slightly for my own, to reflect my own opinion. I wouldn't say that it's slightly inappropriate to, to ask the Pope, um, these, these questions with this apparent motivation in, in this way. Um, I'd say it's just, it's impolitic. Like, I don't understand the purpose of this. This is what I meant when I said, you know, reading the dubia, the question that comes from is like, have, are, have they not met Pope Francis before? Like this was never going to get the response of this. So it seems to me to have um, I, either a certain naivete to it of thinking, no, 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 this time it will be different. This time he's just going to give us yes or no's um, when I don't think that was ever likely to happen. But the other thing is like, what if he did? I, I you know, what, what's the hope there? Like suppose Pope Francis just went down the line of the doobie and said, yes, yes, no, yes, no. In whatever order, they are and whatever, you know, delete is appropriate, insert yes, no is appropriate to affirm exactly what the obvious common sense answer to all of these things is. Is that going to change anything? That's not going to stop a single blessing of a same-sex union in a German parish. That is not going to stop the people who have come to the synod that opened this week from raising the issue of women's ordination. That's not like there, there would be exactly zero practical effect of that. So, you know, as again, as a, as, you know, what, what is the hope that is, you know, being expressed here? What is the achievement that the people want to realize? And then the other thing is that if this is a sort of, you know, and, and I don't, I don't think this is the intention of the five cardinals who submitted the dubia, but I do think this is the desire of many people who are championing them and having submitted it, um, that they would like the Pope to just out himself as a heretic and say, no, no, no. This isn't about getting to affirm about this is about unmasking him. Getting, you know, getting Pope Francis to come right out and say what we all know, which is that he's a dirty little heretic and he secretly wants to ordain women and thinks that gay marriage is a totally valid thing and on par with the sacrament of marriage. And you know, it's just like it's like, okay, if that's your hope, let's say the Pope gives you what you want. Now what? What happens now? Are you Right. Are you going to declare the Pope a heretic? Right. And then what? He's still Bishop of Rome. Right. Like, so congratulations. You've, you've formalized a, a situation of mass contradiction at the very top of the church hierarchy, at the very heart of the doctrinal teaching of the church to do what? To provoke a schism? And so this is where I think that very honestly, like when I say not asking the question sincerely, again, I don't want to impugn bad motives to these cardinals. I really don't. No, I, I don't want to impugn bad. I, I I'm confused about their motives. Well, I but I, I think, think there are a lot of I bad motives behind a lot of the support that they're attracting. I think they probably. I, I know. I I believe that they believe that they're aiming to serve the church. I think they probably presumed with the second set of questions that the Pope was not going to answer them. And well, so I, then they were, they were submitted with the intention of releasing publicly and saying the Pope. I, I think that is, I think that we have to consider that that's at least a possibility. And that's a kind of, I, I don't know, that strikes me. It seems to me that that strikes me as something kind of performative. Now with that said, and here's, I mean, here's a question that I think is worth talking about. We ask people questions all the time. You know, you and I talked about this a little bit before, but we ha- we're in the business of asking questions, which is literally our job to ask questions. And um, when Cardinal McElroy said that um, that the Synod on Synodality would, would or should discuss the ordination of women, I requested an interview with him in which I wanted to ask him, 
hard questions in which I wanted him to explicate his sort of theological vision because I thought it was important for him to explicate his theological vision for people to understand what it is. And at the same time, when um, Bishop um, uh, Papraki put out the thing that he said he thought that, the, that Cardinal McElroy was potentially in heresy, I asked him hard questions. We did ask him hard questions, and we sort of asked questions that forced him to sort of work on the sort of rough contours and edges of what it means to be in heresy. And I think there are probably people who ended up agreeing with him and people who ended up disagreeing with him. We believe that it was our job in both cases to get the person to explicate as fully as they possibly can the sort of thinking and rationale behind a, an assertion that they're making. Is that different? I mean, the question is, and we've talked about this a little bit, you and me, but is that different from what the Cardinals were doing? I think if the Cardinals were doing it with the hope of getting an answer, it's not different. I think if they... Okay, so let me let me just offer this. First of all, if I had a five-minute interview with Cardinal McElroy now or at the time that he made that statement, my question would not be, could you please outline your theological vision on, on the sacramental nature of the ordination of priesthood? My first question out of the gate would be, Pope Francis has said explicitly that that is not an option. That is off the table. That is not for discussion. So how can you, as a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church, in good faith, amplify and call for something that the Pope has said he is explicitly against in a venue that he has called explicitly inappropriate for that? Where do you get off, Cardinal McElroy? That would be my first question. You ask the question, or at least I would want to ask the question, that I think it's the heart of the matter and actually outlines the contours of what's going on, which is not, does Cardinal McElroy have a fascinating sacramental theology? It's Cardinal McElroy is going against what Pope Francis has said he believes and what the church teaches and what he wants the synod to be. That's the key issue. If I had a five-minute interview with Pope Francis, I wouldn't waste a second um, trying to box him in with yes or no questions on the stuff that's in the dubia, not because I don't think they're relevant, not because I don't think the church wouldn't benefit from the Pope speaking with one word clarity on many of these issues, but because I know he wouldn't answer them. And there are more pressing things I would choose to ask the Pope about if I had the opportunity about the Rupnik case, about Vatican finances, about things like that. But, you know, you, you, you take your choices, I guess. No, I think that's, yeah, I think that's right. But I mean, again, you can't address the same set of questions to Pope Francis that I would address to Cardinal McElroy because he's the Pope and he does not answer to anyone here. Well, I he mean, I, I don't think... You can't ask the Pope, where do you get off? Because he's the Pope. I, I don't I don't agree with that. I mean, I don't agree with okay. that. I think... No, it's okay. So say more things about that. I, I, I think Catholics can ask the Pope what they like. Um, where I, I think... The, right, I think you're, not gonna, you're not entitled to a response necessarily. You're not or necessarily... Certainly he's not obligated to give one. You're not entitled to a response. Certainly he's not obligated to give one. But I think Catholics can ask the Pope for a kind of, you know, can ask, should, I, I don't think that any question should be, I'm no respecter of persons, Ed. I'm proud of that. Yes, I know. I, <laughs> I've traveled through airports with you and we've nearly been arrested as a result. I don't think there should be a question off limits out of sort of deference to the Pope or respect for the Pope. And 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 No, it's not a question of deference and that's off limits. It's just a question of what are your expectations from this exchange? But I do think even making clear, I do, I do think it's even reasonable. I think it's important for Catholics to know what the Pope thinks. I do think that. Um, and for especially bishops to know what the Pope thinks and those attending the Synod on Synodality and those kinds of things. And so, yeah, if I were in this sort of environment in which I could ask the Pope questions, I would want to ask him questions, uh, uh, you know, hard questions, even about sort of theological matters. I think the dubia format I think what seems sort of what's what strikes me as being a little disingenuous here is that the dubia format is not meant 
to say to the Pope, we think you should correct X, Y, or Z. A media interview is meant to sort of, or a, a meeting with the Pope or something else is meant to sort of explicate things. The dubia format is actually meant to ask the Pope in good faith for clarity on some confusing thing as I see it. And so it seems to me to be misused here. We don't understand if the Council of Trent is still in effect. Well, yes, you do. That's not what the confusion is. The confusion is, we don't understand why you're saying all this stuff that makes it seem like Trent is not in effect anymore. We don't understand why you're allowing all this conversation that makes it seem like you don't care about, or that makes it seem to us like you don't care about ordinary secretaries. Or we don't understand why you seem to be tolerant of these same-sex union guys. Um, or we don't understand why you seem to be replacing, as they sort of allude to in question three, we don't understand why it seems to us that you seem to be sort of replacing synodality as um, uh, a replacement of the College of Bishops, and we don't understand why you're doing that. That seems to me to be a good faith question. Okay. Is it actually true that synodality can replace the the um, exercise of the College of Bishops, which is willed by her founder? I think they have a sense of what the answer is. Right, and, and so when we're talking about um, more or less apt means of voicing sincere concerns on points of genuine either ambiguity or alarm. I think the other thing we had this week was we had this letter from Cardinal Zen that yeah, he right. circulated amongst bishops and cardinals who were attending the synod, which he is not attending because he's not Invited. he's NFI. Um, I don't know what that means. It, it, it's an abbreviation. Um, oh, not? Not invited. I see. And I mean, I read that. We reported on it in in fact, I think we were the first to report on it. But that's we were the nice. first to report on it in that's the world. Me, you know, that's nice, but it's just not important. What it is. Um, but I mean, Cardinal Sen's letter. You think pulled, it's important to have good reporting on those things as soon as possible? Sure. Just um, hit that Car subscribe button. Okay. Um, but Cardinal Sen's letter was extremely systematic, extremely thoughtful, and pulled exactly zero punches. I mean, he. He went to the wall on some stuff, and he accused the synodal secretariat of deliberate manipulation, and he questioned the Pope's decision to invite uh, lay delegates to the synod, the session of the synod, which is formally speaking a session of the synod of bishops, which is a, an ecclesiastical body created by Paul VI after Vatican II as an mm -hmm. expression of collegiality amongst the mm -hmm. College of Bishops worldwide, and said so this completely screws up the entire mechanism to have lay people voting alongside bishops in what is supposed to be an exercise of collegiality at the level of the bishops. Uh, this, you know, can you, if I were, if I had been invited and if I were to, I would be strongly protesting this. I urge you to send a petition to the Holy Father late in the day right. as it is saying, can we at least count the bishops' votes separately to the lay votes? Do with that what you want, but can we at least distinguish what the voice of the bishops is saying in the meeting of the Synod of Bishops versus what these lay people are saying who have been invited, nice as they are, and we've had them, you know, before as, even you know, vocally intervening delegates and experts and auditors and everything else, he pulled no punches. He was very clear about what was scaring the crap out of him about the yeah. synod on synodality, and he wrote this letter. He circulated amongst bishops and cardinals, and and I think that was a far more apt way mm -hmm. of articulating exactly this, or not exactly many of the same things that I think these dubia were getting at. But I think that was a far better presentation because, again, it doesn't have this sort of kayfabe, oh, we're, we're confused. Does does divine right. revelation actually endure or does it right. all change when social mores change? Like it, right. There's an honesty to it. And right. I think that's that's very important, especially when you're dealing with something like this. 
Um, and nothing stops, you know, I, look, so here's the thing that I've heard many times from many different people who are in a position to know, and I think you have too, but it, there's, it's no secret around the Vatican. There was a lot of talk about it um, in sort of December last year that Pope Francis was toying with the idea of making a particular German bishop the head of the Dicaster for the Doctrine of the Faith, a German bishop with a long and public track record of dissenting from church teaching. Yeah. Not sort of flirting with weird ways of articulating it, but, but like formally dissenting from it. And I heard from a lot of people, including people who were in it, that a line of cardinals formed to see the Pope and say, you cannot do this. Yeah, that's right. We have Holy Father, right. you cannot do this. Yeah, that's like, right. We, you know, you're the Pope, you're the Bishop of Rome, no one's you questioning it. You do what you want, but- This, yeah. you really, this is like, you can't do this. Yeah. And, you know, we got Archbishop, now Cardinal Fernandez instead. You can- you know, and apparently there was a third candidate that I intend to write about some other day. But but you know, people people. It was so funny because people were saying that the appointment of who was it again who, that they were saying was going to get it. I can't remember his name. I think it began with a W. People were saying, this, yeah, we we never we were like the only ones who never reported. People were like, why aren't you reporting that so and so is going to is going to be the is going to be named? Yeah, right. Exactly. Why aren't you reporting? Why aren't you reporting? And we're like, because no one. We don't think that's going to be the case. And then eventually we started hearing the story that there was a lot of objection to it. And I, did we report that? I can't remember. I, I think we, we wrote something in reference to the the in-house objections to it. In Bill the Murray. Yeah. Bishop Brian, Bill, Bill Murray. Murray. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't, I don't know to what extent that those cardinals who lined up to say you cannot do this weren't actually acting in response right. to press speculation that this guy was getting asked for yeah, the right. Pope's exactly. actual intention. That's, that's exactly but right. But anyway, either way, yeah. like it just shows you that if – a critical mass of the College of Cardinals are freaked out about something. Nothing prevents them from just lining up at the breakfast table at the Dome of Sancta Marta and saying, Holy Father, can I just have 10 seconds to say, please, no. Um, you know, that that's fine. That's good. That's what the College of Cardinals is for. I I, yeah. I just, I don't know. I feel In like fact, this- that's what I think the College of Bishops is for. And we don't all have access to the line, but that I think is an appropriate exercise of one's baptismal dignity. Right. Yeah. Well, and actually, you go back far enough. I mean, that's traditionally what general audiences are for. Yeah, and you think about. I mean, I, I've. Oh, really? Is like, that I would think. No, but I think like the, the the tradition of a sovereign holding a general audience is for the re, the hearing of petitions. Like that's the that's the function of the thing. So, Ed, you tell me, and then we got to go to commercial. But you, you tell me. Um, you know, there's a tradition in your country um, called a uh, called prime minister's questions. Where yes. the prime minister gets up, and I guess any member of parliament can ask him questions. Um, is this reminiscent of prime minister's? Are the questions largely things people want to know, or points people want to make? You've asked me. You've asked me a dubia with a yes, and asked for a yes or no answer, and I can't <laughs> give you one because it would be inappropriate in the context. Um, give me seven prime, pages, Condon. Prime minister's questions, uh, which is now the ones that we used to be in a more civilized era, the twice a week when the prime minister would go and take questions from the house as part of a, a more basic and bedrock principle of ministerial accountability and parliamentary supremacy. That is the executive, uh, the executive branch of the government is subordinate to the legislative branch. Parliament is supreme. And so ministers of the crown are expected to present themselves in the house and to submit themselves to questioning about whatever is going on. And the prime minister is not exempted from this. Uh, the, your, to your point about, is this a, an opportunity for people to sort of grandstand and make points, or is it a question of you know probing questions? The the answer is it's both. Um, questions from the prime minister's own party, for they are allowed to ask questions of the prime minister 
just as much as the opposition use it to make points and to basically lob softballs for the prime minister mm. to crush across the aisle and say, yeah, we rule because this. Um, the opposition use it for forensic dissection of government policy, hopefully, or if they don't have any particular forensic dissection to offer, they use it for sort of punch and Judy theater and, you know, a bit of good oratory and entertainment value. So it's both. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, again, you say, how can we, how can we manifest, um, how can the faithful manifest urgent concern in, in accord with their state and in a way that is suitable? I would have no problem myself. I suspect that I, Many people in the Vatican would disagree with me, and they would find this bruta uh, in, in the extreme. But I have no problem with people turning up to the general audience and and saying, "Pope Francis, please answer the dubia." Um, yeah, you right. Know, that's that. You know that that's what an audience is for: is the sovereign puts himself in audience with the people who wish to make petitions to him. And very honestly, if that's the number one sort of um, effect of, um, if the number one thing people say in the synodal hall is answer the dubious, fine. That's what people have to say. And in a synodal church, especially, um, I think the point is being able to say your thing or whatever. So um, <laughs> I like to make that the tagline, the synod on synodality. The point is being able to say your thing or whatever. Um, but, you know, one would think that there would be, I think, appreciation for that. Um, and, and and so that's where it is. We, what we need to talk about when we come back, I think we've talked this side to, of things to death. What we should talk about when we come back is the substance of the Pope's answers which are as uh as interesting as the and have been have proven much more controversial as the mode of asking them so for sure let's do that in just a minute and this week's episode of the pillar podcast is brought to us by mariel arnold in honor of that husband travis arnold who's celebrating his birthday this week and travis one thing is and i wasn't going to say this because i don't like to make a deal out of it but we i have a birthday this week too so i think we might be birthday twinsies my friend so Here's what Marielle has to say. She says, Travis is an amazing husband and father who does so much to love and support his family. She says that Travis is a caring friend who ventures to be a witness to the love of God, to his friends and his community. What else, Ed? Uh, he works hard to lead his family spiritually and he and to be the head of his domestic church and models virtues of masculinity to all those he encounters, but most especially to those for whom he is spiritually responsible. Travis's wife may have to opt out of giving birthday presents in the future, though, because there's no way... It's going to get better. This is what Travis than having like. your very own episode of the Pillar Podcast. <laughs> Happy so, listen. Birthday, here's Trevor. what we want from you, listeners: um, uh, pray for Travis and his family. Um, just do it. I mean, right now, take a minute, pray for Travis and his family, and you can pray for Travis and his family while we um, sing to him, "Happy Birth." Are you going to sing with me, Ed? I'm going to try. I full disclosure: I am not allowed to sing "Happy Birthday" in my house, um, and my family uses a different. We use an alternative "Happy Birthday." Um, song. So, well, so this is going to be that. a train wreck. Um, you don't know the song and I can't sing. I know sing. it. It's just not my customary. It's not our customary song. I see. Happy birthday Day to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Pillar Podcast sponsor, Travis Arnold. Happy birthday to you. The temptation to get all breathy and Maryland, bro, there was almost overwhelming. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you didn't. Happy Happy freaking freaking birthday, birthday, Travis. Travis. And we are back. I mean, I want to talk about Travis some more, but we are back. I didn't realize it was your birthday this week. It's not. It's. I just said that. It doesn't matter. It's important. I I got caught up in the spirit of the moment. I I hadn't wanted to say anything. I don't like to say anything about that kind of stuff, but 
And we're going to talk about your birthday in the bonus episode. We're not going to talk about my yeah, birthday. Are, right? We're going to talk about presents. We're going to do Are we going to be oh, later? We'll talk about this later. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk okay. about the actual substance of right. what, what the, the response to the dubia yeah. was. Mm-hmm. And this, I mean, I, it was, I got a lot of messages from people. You probably did too, who were saying, oh my goodness, is is the synod going to lead to a schism? Are we going to have gay marriage in the church now? Because it was in every newspaper from, and I'm not kidding you, I checked. It was in the London Times, it was in the Wall Street Journal, it was in basically every American, it was in you know the Australian newspapers, it was in the French newspapers, it was in, I, I it wasn't page one, but it was in the, it was in the Hindustan Times. I mean, this is, this was a big deal. It made all the headlines and all the headlines basically said, Pope Francis opens the door to blessing same-sex unions or some version thereof. And, you know, I, it's interesting. I have been reading different sort of perspectives on this and there are people saying, oh, the Pope did nothing of the kind. In fact, the Pope may have put even a a more precise limit on um, the blessings than he did previously. I, it seems to me um, that what the Pope had to say was pretty clearly um, there may be people, or I, I want to find the text here if I can, um, because what the Pope had to say was effectively, I, I, I don't want to pretend to be quoting when I'm not, but there may be, look, I affirm that you can't, um, that the church has no power to bless a, liturgically bless a same-sex union in a way that makes it resemble marriage. And um Good. I mean, you know, that's true. The Pope's own um, DDF said that, and that's relatively self-evident. But then uh, he said, but you know, there might be people who come to church who are seeking a blessing, and we should see in that seeking of a blessing that they're seeking the presence of God in their lives. I think that's true too. Um, I, I think that's very insightful. I think I'm glad that the Pope had to say that. It would be it would be an extraordinary scandal if there were places in this world where people were coming to the church for a blessing and the pastor was saying, no, we, we don't do that. Or the parish secretary said, sorry, we don't do that. And then hung up and that was it. No, I mean, like someone who comes to the parish in this situation is is um, an extraordinary opportunity, actually, like it's a gift for the parish, right? But, um, but the Pope says, so we should see that. And I'm glad that he did. And then he says, you know, there may be circumstances under which one or more persons who comes to the parishes could receive some kind of blessing as long as it doesn't appear to be the same as marriage. And that does, Ed, I think, leave a broad room for interpretation. Now he says, though, look, Episcopal conferences shouldn't make liturgical bless, you know, liturgical rites for this, seemingly maybe talking to the bishops of Flanders. And, you know, we're, we're not going to have kind of like um, programs related to this. But if someone comes, you know. It's a the, matter of pastoral discernment. It's a matter of pastoral discernment. And that could be taken to mean that, that, that all, all of that can be affirmed, right? The question is, how will it be received, and how did the Pope understand that it might be received, and what does sure. the Pope's action convey about how it will be received? And I think you, it, it is. I don't think it's possible to to think about that and and ask those questions, and also to read um, that answer absent the 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 wider context. And by that I mean, for example, this is exactly how things started in the Anglican Communion. That yeah. There were all of these requests that the, the, the Anglican community, the Church of England, should accept um, gay marriage. It should bring this in, and they they started off with no, no, marriage is between a man and a woman, and you know, 
But I mean, if you know, if you if you want to do something that makes it clear that this isn't marriage, it's just you know a different kind of partnership, and you know we're not trying to replace marriage or put this on a par with it. If you want to, you know, well, that's you know that's different, and you know, that's how it started. And I I, I don't I don't think it's possible that Cardinal Fernandez or or whoever else you know did the did the sort of actual physical writing of of these responses was unaware of that. I, I find that incredible. So, um, you know, I, I think there, I, I, do, I like you, I saw a lot of people sort of pushing back on the, on the headlines, particularly in, in secular outlets saying the Pope did not say the church could bless same sex unions. It did not indicate that he was open to the idea. Well, I think there's more probably truth to the headline than to the denial. Yeah, I, and I think that there's. I think the Pope opened the door in a lot of people's minds. Communication is a communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything uh, communication exists between two pe- persons: the person who conveys and the person who receives. And I think in there's nothing in the text to prohibit those who receive from understanding that the Pope is saying that two people can receive together, a, a couple can receive a blessing, which. Um, seems to validate a union which is taught by the church to contravene um, divine law and God's plan for human flourishing. Yeah, the text can be received that way. And the Pope's seeming failure to respond or choice not to respond in public, in a public way to the scandals of those dioceses that we mentioned before would seem to say that the, the Pope already has given a kind of tacit whether the Pope has given, as the Flemish bishops say, a kind of tacit approval to what they're doing, or whether the Pope has simply failed to act and by failing to act has allowed this problem to fester, that is the context in which the Pope now says, you know, and these kinds of things can be handled according to pastoral discernment. And so for many people, there will be understood to mean a continuity of what is. And um, that does seem to be an affirmation of perhaps a door opened by the Pope's permissive will, so to speak. This is, yeah. I think, a big deal. I, what I think is a big deal is the, the Pope not responding to dioceses which are doing things which contravene the, the directives of the CDF and divine law. Yeah. And this... There's nothing wrong with the Pope's answer to the dubia if you're going to police it in line with church teaching, if you're going to stop people from taking it and warping it into applications that are manifestly against what the church says. Um, but that's that's not going to happen. We know it's not going to happen because it's not happening now. And I, that is a big deal. That is a big problem. I, I don't have, I mean, if this is as far as it goes, like if this is ahead of the game, the, the footnote 358, whatever it was, 391, what was the footnote? 315. Yeah. If this is the, if this is the footnote of the synod with regard to same sex unions before the fact, then I think we're right where we are, right where we were after Morse the teaching, which is there's a way that you can read this that is perfectly in accord with the church's teaching. And there are lots of ways you can read it, which are totally against the church's teaching. And we can see a lot of practice of the latter and less of the former. Um, but that doesn't have to be the sort of cataclysmic end of the church's claims to be definely founded in that the gates of hell will not prevail against her because the church 
slides into appallingly bad practice. She can be bad at pra- at, li- at living that out. And and th- this- she can even be prone to practical heresy at a mass level. I mean, we've had that before. There was yeah. a time when we a critical had that mass before. of the- that is not uh, that is not not unheard new. of. That there- would not be new. And we don't like to be alarmists, but we're saying. You know, no, but I think some, there are contrary to counterintuitive as it is, I think saying, listen, it's happened before that a critical mass of the world's bishops right. were heretics all at once. Right. That's not right. the alarmist position. That's actually, look, just keep right. your pants on. It's we, the church has been through this before and has survived it before. If that's where we're going, and you know, it's not fun, and it's a call to courageous and heroic witness among the faithful in the church, and it does require. As we had in, for example, in the middle of the Albigensian heresy and things like that, um, bishops who are willing to speak the truth to all levels of the church and her hierarchy and to get beat up about it a lot, all of that, you know, everything I've said about what I, my, my reservations about the form of the dubia and everything notwithstanding, I do think that bishops who are standing would say there's a lot of ambiguity abounding here about some things about which the church is not at all ambiguous. And somebody needs to just say out loud, this is what the church teaches, and this is what the church cannot change. And the church teaches this and cannot change this because it comes from God. And God doesn't do it because it's an arbitrary rule to conform to some outmoded notions of patriarchy and human sexuality. It's because that is God's plan in creation for human flourishing. Like yeah. that, The guys who are willing to stand up and say that are true bishops. That is a good thing to do. Absolutely. No no question there. No bones about it. Absolutely. No bones about it. But again, we the church has been here before. And so to say that this is, you know, we're living the end of history in the Catholic Church is No, no, no. Come on. No, but people it's, are saying it's, like it's, it's my inbox, my, my phone, not just my inbox, my phone. People who have my phone number, JD, are texting me saying, This is how it ends, right? Like this is where the great schism's gonna happen. It's like it's the it's the narcissism of what I might call presentism. The perception that the present is more grave than any other period, which, is the, or like, ex- which know, is the ultimate expression of historical relativism. It's yeah, it's sort of main era. You know, you talk about main character syndrome, where you sort of always think mm-hmm. of yourself as being the most last it's chapter kind of syndrome, main period syndrome, last chapter, last chapter syndrome is excellent. Well done. Thank you. I just right off the top of my head that one. Happy freaking birthday, Travis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trademarking last chapter syndrome and I'm giving it to Travis Arnold for his birthday. <laughs> he owns that term. I'm trying to decide if Kate is going to call this episode last chapter syndrome or happy freaking birthday, Travis. It seems to me those are the obvious choices. Travis but I don't Arnold's know. last chapter. <laughs> I'm kidding, Travis. Oh, Travis. I want you to leave a long and healthy, many happy returns. Yeah. These issues... Um, There's a there's a there's a misplaced sense of fatherhood, spiritual or practical, in which the the hard obligations of love are replaced by kind of excessive sentimentality. I don't think Travis suffers from this, but we've talked about it before. I'm sure he doesn't. In fact, I in fact, um, he's got a loving wife. Yeah, Marielle said that he doesn't suffer from it. So Travis doesn't suffer from this, but other people can. Um, in which the hard obligations of charity are. Are, are replaced by a kind of um, misplaced excessive sentimentality. We talked about that in the sexual abuse crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about that a lot with regard to the sexual abuse crisis. You know who spoke very directly about that at the opening of the Synod on the Family? 
Francesco the first was Pope Francis who talked yeah. about the the I forget the word the exact word he used but it was like the 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 damaging and misapplied instinct to bind up the wound without first curing it yeah that's right bishops who believed that the best course of action with a a, a, a sinful son a priest who had committed grave acts of immorality was to coddle and forgive without sufficient contrition and to accommodate and and to center in the narrative, right? To put the sinful son in the center of the narrative and, and, and imagine the story to be, the obligation to entirely be about his comfort and personal security and validation. And that led to many of the profound sins of the sexual abuse crisis. The same thing is true in a doctrinal crisis, in a, what I think is probably the doctrinal crisis of our era, in which we often want to replace an excessive sentimental care, a, a kind of care, but an excessively sentimental care for people and their well-being and their self-worth and their sense that God loves them with the hard demands of charity. And um, the Pope seems to have this experience or this perception that the Church is too often cruel and doctrinaire and has discouraged what he perceives to be cruelty and doctrinal triumphalism in, in the pastoral life of the Church. But we have seen at the same time a rise in this excessive sentimentality in a kind of spiritual fatherhood characterized by excessive sentimentality, which is ultimately weak and which ultimately contributes only to perdition. And, um, and that is something in which I think there's need for real spiritual reflection and, um, real correction reform. Yeah. Re I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, We'll see what happens. We're not going to Rome for a little while. We 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 each had some obligations. There were a few reasons we're not going to Rome for a little while, and I actually don't want to say it's because we had some obligations. Because if we reporting is our life, this journalism is our work, and if we needed to be in Rome for the whole of the month, we'd be in the Ro Rome for the whole of the month. We did not believe it would be a good use of the pillars' resources to have journalists there for the whole of the month because it's expensive. It, it is expensive and prohibitively it is expensive. Our, it is prohibitively expensive. The media is prohibited is prohibited from much observation and it is our perception that the sort of final week and a half or so of this of this month will be the time in which things really come to a head so we're not going to Rome next week we're going to Rome the the week after and i'm and i think that was i think that was the right choice but we'll be you know reporting on the synod as it continues and certainly once we get there obviously doing much more of that but um we will continue to be reporting on it and uh, continuing to be seeing sort of what emerges from it as these other issues in the life of the church continue to germinate as well. Yeah. You know what I'm doing this weekend? What? I'm going on retreat with my wife. That's awesome. That's great. What's the retreat? Um, it's it's a retreat we make every October, actually, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We didn't do it last year because we just had a baby. Um, and that means- That's not true. Too, isn't she? Well, yeah, but I mean, one year old. Like this is the first oh, year. Oh, you're a one year old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is the first year at which we feel 
you know, we can leave the kid for. But you didn't do it like you didn't do it last year or the year before because you didn't do it like right after. No, not while not while you know, the baby was on arrival. No, that that wouldn't have worked. Yeah, you would have been still been. Um, I, I was going to say, eating, I mean, I was, you know, I was going to say eating her placenta, but I don't know. Whoa, are, whoa! I doubt you're those kind of people. You know, there are people who eat the placenta. What? You know that there are people who eat the placenta. I thought that was like no, but they don't actually like. I thought that was a metaphor for like weird hippies. Like they, people don't actually uh, do that. I think that's that cannibalism. There are people who think that that provides real health benefits that it provides nutrients to the mother and allows for a quicker recovery after birth. I, who wrote that? Dr. Hannibal Lecter? What? I don't know how widespread it is. Um, Well, I hope not too. I mean, what? But there is, that is a, it is a phenomenon which exists in certain cultures. Yeah, but like the people who also like shrink heads and cook their enemies after a battle like not <laughs> not know. civilized people oh this is interesting is it or is this going to terrify me well it's going to be it's we're not we're down a, we're down a weird rabbit hole now the human placenta is also an ingredient in some traditional chinese medicines including using dried human placenta known as zihish to treat infertility, impotence, and other conditions. Okay, no, 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 hang on, hang on. No, 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 no. Whenever something is a traditional Chinese remedy for impotence, it's fake. That's like, they, they like, that's Sure, the, I'm sure it doesn't resolve impotence. British that's celebrity like, you know, chef, oh, you need rhino horn for that. Like, you've got to be kidding me. It's just nonsense. British celebrity chef Hugh Feemley Whittingstall. Fernley Whittingstall? Hugh are you Fernley, familiar with Hugh I'm, Buddy, here's, I'm going to blow your mind. I've met him. I've been well, to his I mean, farm. Something about him. I've been to his farm you. for a weekend. Time to tell you something about him. Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, on one of his River Cottage programs, notoriously cooked and ate a human placenta. I wish I could unknow that. I'm sorry. I'm not going back I'm over my butchery sorry. course that I took with him and thinking. I'm sorry. At any sorry. point, did he suggest that he was a cannibal? I don't think so. This is interesting. The I hope this is less interesting than the last thing you taught me. This happened in um, in the 1990s, and the Broadcasting Standards Commission of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland said that the oh it was a television program called TV Dinners in which he did this, and they said that he that the show quote breached a taboo and would have been disagreeable to many. I I would I would wholeheartedly agree. The eating yeah. of human flesh is a taboo. Yes. Yeah. A good one. But the commission accepted that it was not illegal. What? Cannibalism isn't illegal in the UK? This kind of cannibalism is not. Are you telling me that the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Rishi Sunak, is trying to outlaw cigarettes, but cannibalism is already okay? Well, I, I mean, if this falls into the category of cannibalism. and What is cannibalism if not eating blood? human flesh? I, I hear you. I hear you. Mr. McNamara, an MP for Whole North. Is that anything that means? Kevin McNamara, yeah. an MP for a whole North, said the program was aff- quite offensive to the public. Yes. That may be the first time you've ever agreed probably with Kevin McNamara. It's entirely possible. And that's the story. So Entertainment Channel 4 was, according to the BBC News headline, wrapped or severely reprimanded, as the lead says, for this service of placenta by Mr. Hugh Fernley Winstall. That's Channel 4 for you. Man. 
happy freaking birthday, Travis. <laughs> this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was sponsored by Marielle Arnold in honor of her husband, Travis Arnold, who is celebrating a birthday this week. Happy birthday, Travis, from all of us at the Pillar. We're really glad, Travis Arnold, to call you a friend. And we hope it's just a great and fantastic birthday. And everybody, do us the favor. Pray for Travis and his family. Get yourself a steak, Travis. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn. You're my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. And our birthday boy is Travis, birthday boy Arnold. Happy birthday.